Jung's monograph on synchronicity was the product of years of thinking, and he only published it in the last decade of his life. Various authors have detailed how this idea fits into the corpus of Jung's other writing, and how it is an integral part of analytical psychology, Jung's term for his general psychological approach. For present purposes, I would like to emphasize and develop a perspective that informs much of Jung's thinking, holism. I will try to build a context for locating Jung's idea of synchronicity based on the scientific milieu he was exposed to from late adolescence through his later years. In particular, the influence of scientific holism. Jung himself only rarely refers to this milieu and then mostly through specific figures that have captured his imagination, such as Goethe. More light. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, July 18th. Happy birthday, Finn. And today we are returning to our roots to take a deep look at synchronicity, and we'll do so with Joseph Cambray. Cambray is the provost and vice president of academic affairs at Pacifica Graduate Institute, as well as a Jungian analyst. He is a past president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology and former U.S. editor of the Journal of Analytical Psychology. For years, he was on the faculty of the Center for Psychoanalytic Studies at Harvard Medical School, where he co-taught a year-long course on becoming a supervisor. He has numerous publications, which include the book based on his Faye lectures, Synchronicity, Nature, and Psyche in an Interconnected Universe which relates how in 1952 C.G. Jung published a paradoxical hypothesis on synchronicity that marked an attempt to expand the Western world's conception of the relationship between nature and psyche. Jung's hypothesis sought to break down the polarizing cause-effect assessment of the world and psyche, suggesting that everything is interconnected. Thus, synchronicity is both a meaningful event and an acausal connecting principle. Evaluating the world in this manner opened the door to exploring the possibility of meaning in chance or random events, deciphering if and when meaning might be present, even if outside conscious awareness. Now, after contextualizing Jung's work in relation to contemporary scientific achievements, such as relativity and quantum theories, Joseph Cambray explores in this new book how Jung's theories, practices, and clinical methods influenced the current field of complexity theory, which works with a paradox similar to Jung's synchronicity. The importance of symmetry as well as the need to break that symmetry for emergence to occur. Finally, Cambray pro provides his unique contribution to the field by attempting to trace cultural synchronicities, a reconsideration of historical events in terms of their synchronistic aspects. For example, he examines the emergence of democracy in ancient Greece in order to find a model of group decision-making based on emergentist principles with a synchronistic core. Welcome, Joseph. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm well. It's uh, great to be on, Doug. Thank you. Thank you. This is, this is really an honor, and um, so... You know, let's just get some perspective to start with. I lately I've been feeling like our culture is really 
literalist and left-brained and scientific materialistic. I'm just wondering if there is room for what would amount to magical thinking in science these days. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a question about the re-enchantment of the world that's uh, fundamentally there. And I don't think it's by being in opposition to science, it's by finding a larger perspective on science. That, and this is coming not just from psychologists critiquing uh, the scientific community, but it's actually within. The, this complexity studies is a field that was first put together by a group of kind of leading scientists who were saying, well, in effect, we're experts in our own individual disciplines, but we've gotten siloed. And the most interesting questions really are what uh, lie between our disciplines. So uh, trying to open up those areas that were traditionally avoided because they were too complicated, too really too complex to think about. And in the process of doing that, what they had to mo- modify the models. In other words, you can't solve these things algorithmically. You can't just um, write down final equations that uh, explain everything. You're looking at levels of complexity that the best you can do is model. It started with like the w- modeling the weather with chaos theory. And what you began to get out of that was a, a kind of a, a really interesting picture of the world that included some really big surprises, like the way certain kinds of systems self-organize uh, without any kind of um, uh, any sort of uh, top-down leadership-directed kind of activity, whether it's at the molecular level or the uh, you know the societal level. Uh, and a lot, there are a lot of examples of this in nature. So that um, the self-organizing behavior then starts to produce something that is greater than the sum of each of the contributions from the individual's components that go into it, but it creates something that what we call emergence. That is, you, you get a higher level global phenomena that starts to work. And from the perspective of the individual, that is magic. It really is. Uh, because there's no direct immediate. You can't say, well, if I do this, then that will happen. It's It's much more profound than that. So some folks who enjoy the idea of synchronicity but aren't necessarily scientists, mm-hmm. they tend to take synchronicities as uh, signposts or kind of messages from a higher power. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily have to be the case with self-organizing systems, does it? Or, or do you no. end up with a cosmology through all this? What, where do you end up? Well, yeah, that's a, it's a... Great question. You do end up with some cosmological dimensions to it, and some of the answers are not exactly straightforward or clear yet. But one of the things is that if you get an emergent form, it is what, in the language of philosophy, it's called superordinate. Uh, and l- let's take the relationship of mind to the body, because that's something that we can all get a hold of a little bit more easily. Um, it's very clear that consciousness is not just some total of all the kind of neurons in your body you know, sort of collectively firing. There's, there's something more that happens in terms of the way uh, your, whole, your whole somatic reality is embedded in an environment and all of that information is being um, synthesized into what then we experience uh, from the top as consciousness. But it's actually something that's emerging out of all of these lower interactions. So in a way, the, the, the magic or the mystery of consciousness is fundamentally part of the same kind of story. And then when you uh, take a step from us as individuals interacting with one another, there's another level of emergence 
say, at a societal level, where we produce certain kinds of things, we're in things that um, produce something much larger than any of us can grasp, and we, we maybe get hints of it. But synchronicity is, in fact, one of those hints or it points us in that direction, and you are experiencing something uh, larger that's being uh, created, even if you don't know exactly what it is. So I don't think this gets rid of the mystery, and quite the opposite. From the cosmological question, um, we can now understand more and more how um, Jung's dialogues with Wolfgang Pauli were influencing the way he was formulating synchronicity, starting first with his clinical experiences of these kinds of um, a-causal meaningful connections and the kind of wow factor that produces when something like that happens, when you suddenly... um, have something that's so extraordinary that it, that it, for all intents and purposes, is magical. But then the question was, um, why is that happening? What, what about the nature of reality? And ultimately, when you read him, you see that he's formulating the concept of the unconscious and of synchronicity in particular with language like, well, at times the unconscious things in the unconscious things collapse, uh, space and time seem to go to zero. Well, he's making those arguments in the late 40s and early 50s, exactly at the time the Big Bang theory of cosmology is being articulated by, you know, the, the George Gamow and the physicists around that whole circle of people. And so what you see Jung doing with synchronicity is saying, you know what, uh, this is a fourth principle we haven't talked about in the West. It's a new philosophical content, and it shapes the fundamental way we look at uh, reality. I think if you reframe it just slightly, uh, it's, it becomes very palatable to contemporary cosmologists. And that is to say, well, at the origins of the universe, there's a pattern-forming tendency that's a fundamental part of nature. This is one of the explanations in Big Bang Theory why uh, anything exists, because if it were totally random, totally, um, you know, sort of completely neutrally distributed uh, uh, kind of explosion, then it ultimately should have canceled itself out and there would be nothing left. There must have been local asymmetries, local uh, you know, uh, changes of density and so forth. And that it's out of that that everything starts to emerge. Uh, so what we've got is the pattern-forming tendency is the reason for all of existence. And synchronicity in a very deep way is based on that as a fundamental principle that things self-organize themselves into patterns. In the book, I, I believe you have, maybe it's an analyst who says that Wolfgang Pauli has a, a mirror complex because he was uncomfortable with the idea that God was a, a left-handed weak God. Could you explain that a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, this, this, uh, it's a wonderful piece of, uh, um, you know, sort of the irony that, uh, that Pauli himself had and, and, and worked with. Uh, he, Pauli was very taken with symmetry. He really, um, that was a very fundamental uh, orientation towards the world. And in the, um, the mid 1950s, there were some experiments done at Columbia that showed that um, the way an antiparticle, uh, uh, what's called a beta particle, was emitted um, was it went in the wrong direction from what the symmetric had, uh, had predicted. And he was just apoplectic because this messed up his vision of the universe. And he wrote Jung in a kind of state about this and said, you know, this can't be. He said, I can't believe the Almighty is a weak left-hander. 
well, to unpack that a little bit, it was uh, it was the weak forces that he was referring to, and that uh, the particle went off to the left instead of to the right. So the, the, basically, what he's doing is he's making fun of the experiment uh, in using what seems uh, like this bizarre baseball metaphor um, in terms of or sports metaphor in terms of uh, uh, physics and and divinity mm-hmm. and. He acknowledges then, and and Jung's Jung's response back is really the, the really brilliant and interesting in and of itself, because Polly was aware that he was kind of caught up in this kind of mirror thing, and and Jung said back, he said, well, he said I, you know, when you really look at it, there must be a bit of asymmetry in the universe because there is a tendency towards consciousness, and that couldn't emerge if there if everything were just completely symmetric. So Jung got the psycho- psychological ramification of that statement, and it was actually somewhat transformative to Pauli to to get that. And the two men helped each other in that way. In their correspondence, when you read it carefully, you see Jung's kind of doing a psychological correction on the kind of uh, uh, way Pauli's complexed around this whole question. And then there are other moments where Jung botches the physics because he really wasn't all that uh, great a physicist. And Pauli's saying, no, no, you're you're mixing up classical uh, thinking with quantum mechanical thinking. Uh, it gives him um, some explanations about why some of what he's doing with um, with synchronicity have to be re understood in terms of what is the the subjective and objective uh, relationships in terms of measurement and of observation. Do you think so? In terms of like thinking about global consciousness do you think that consciousness still is more of a classical type of it behaves more like classical physics than quantum physics have we have we taken that quantum leap well you know i i think it's like the move from newton to einstein in a way is exactly what you're talking about you know from ordinary much of our ordinary perspective can be um, handled through a kind of a more classical intra-psychic view of the world. But it breaks down um, when you push on it. Uh, there's so many examples I can give of um, not just my own, but many other people's kind of observations that there's a lot of aspects of consciousness, especially as you move towards the unconscious and you get more involved with that realm where you're looking at a non-local field that it just doesn't seem to be so nice and neat and tidy, that it just uh, that's just mine and not yours. That uh, I think more and more in the last 25 years in the world of psychotherapy, for example, the interpersonal dimension of it, the fact that we co-construct what's going on in the room is a fundamental part of the, the understanding of mind, and now it's gone to human um, development. That it, Babies and mothers co-create a kind of mental world that the sense of self comes out of our interactions with others. It's not wholly an internal thing. So I think that that paradigm is shifting. And so therefore, what is the nature of consciousness to the individual is one of the things that, that I think we're on the cusp of something here. It's a, towards a theory of consciousness. We're not there yet, but I think that's the... the um, one of the fundamentally most exciting areas of development now, and it touches back to a number of indigenous traditions, uh, both the East and West, the idea that there might be collective levels of the mind that uh, that are really transpersonal at the deepest level, 
that uh, that embrace and carry us all. There was a book that came out, I don't know how many years ago it was, but it, it's called All Things Shining, and it was looking at the consciousness of the 60s and how that was that was pretty close to a, a complete paradigm shift. Um, yeah. I'm curious, I mean, so you, you spoke of, you in your book you also wrote about this idea of a, a consciousness overhaul with the idea of uh, democracy and, and um, how the nature of Kairos changed. Uh, you know, I wonder, I wonder yeah. about our moment, is it, I guess, where, where I'm going, you know, just, um, mm-hmm. sure. you know, if, <laughs> could you give me some perspective on, uh, you know, looking back to, to Young and where he came and then where we're at now and, and where you think exciting, exciting things are on the horizon? Yeah, well, I can give you a couple of lines of development. I mean, first off, Jung was a, a extremely intuitive individual. So, and, you know, he he both had a fair degree of erudition, had a good education, uh, he had a very very intelligent mind, and he was highly intuitive. So, he often got himself into a certain amount of difficulty, synchronicity being one of the places by being about 75 years ahead of what was around him in the culture in terms of some of the kind of um, concepts he was visioning. So he didn't have full language or full, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, rigor in terms of being able to ground what he was talking about. And he would sort of leap around a bit like that. So my my feeling is that if you watch in the early 1950s as he's working out the synchronicity thing, um, there's also uh, movements going on with cybernetics. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that's that uh, Robert Wiener and the development of that whole field uh, about self-regulating systems. You know, the the, the kind of things with the thermostats and all of that. And you find Jung immediately picking this material up and saying, "Ah, oh, the psyche is like a self-regulating system. That's the way the conscious-unconscious dynamic it, it, it fine-tunes itself." And so what you see is that he was very much paying attention to what was emerging in contemporary culture that was giving him a richer and fuller picture of the mind. Now, were he alive today, I'm suggesting that some of the stuff like some complexity theory would have been fascinating to him. I mean, it's not me alone. There are a group of analysts that I know who we use this to re-examine a variety of kind of concepts in psycho- psychoanalysis as well as analytical psychology. And that's, and there are also psychoanalysts who are doing that, but find complexity theory absolutely fundamental to um, the best explanation at the moment for the, the, the nature of the mind. Um, I don't think it's a final solution by any means, but... In terms of some of the the areas that expands into, well, for me personally, things like uh, the ecological, you know, to really understand the the way in which systems that a um, you know sort of multiple kind of components uh, in an environment, the way a whole environment works as a whole, and there's more and more evidence of this. You know, um, some of it's a little controversial, but I think it's still it creates the picture that you move remove an alpha predator from a a kind of ecological system, and you get breakdown. You get what's called a tropic cascade. That pull, you know, hunt the wolves in Yellowstone to extinction, and you lose a lot of wetland and all kind of other things. And you get you loss of diversity of species. You reintroduce them after 75 years, and lo and behold, they drive off the elk and the deer that are eating the the, the young 
aspen shoots and so you start to get uh, recovery and then beavers come back and build dams and you get wetlands and certain kinds of birds come back in other words you get a regeneration and so it's a kind of creativity in nature and in the world the, the kind of intelligence that comes with kind of collective uh complexity and the same thing with you know, there's been a lot of work recently about forests and the way forests um, have the interconnected networks through fungi and so forth, so that there's a kind of uh, intelligence in the collective that works that we're just beginning to tap into. You know, there are these giant networks of fungi that connect well, very large chunks of forests, uh, and if there's an infestation of, say, beetles or something like that, then there are warning signals that go up through the network and um, allow the trees to change their defenses the chemicals in their bark and so forth to help them try to weather these sort of things and their responses to climate change and what have you. And once you start to move into that realm where you start to see a larger interconnected world, the visions that start to come out of that begin to look an awful lot like what has been found in certain meditative practices. For example, I'm interested in different kinds of Buddhism and the the, uh, visions of an inter- uh, dependent or codependent, um, you know, sort of uh, universe, the way it emerges, um, are remarkably similar in some ways to the kind of ecological complex vision. And what it does is seems to, again, locate consciousness as one component in that uh, ecological system. So when we move in these directions, I think what we're doing is saying psyche is a lot bigger than the kind of pictures we've had before and that you intuited some of these things but wasn't um, he didn't have all of this other information to help him really expand and, and ground that understanding it was more it remained at the level of intuition and what you just described is that what's known as holism you yeah, it takes well there are different kinds of holism but yes this is a kind of um holistic perspective that is emerging out of a kind of careful, detailed observation of um, systems in the world. And and actually, when we can begin to allow for their complexity, we see that it's how how nature operates and how there's a kind of intelligence in nature that emerges from this. I think we have yet to really understand biological intelligence, that we have put ourselves at the top of a pyramid and um, think that our individualized consciousness is the kind of uh, final uh, answer to uh, evolution. And I don't, I'm I'm less, there's certain things we do very well and that we we can be very creative, but I think there's an awful lot in the world that uh, we've yet to tap into and yet to really appreciate and understand around this. And that it has profound impact on who we actually are. Uh, we just may not know it. Yeah, you you speak to that, the idea of a larger intelligence. that, And so with our big brains, we think that we need to be able to put it all in our heads to understand something. But you speak about these larvae that mimic a type of bee so that they can do... Oh, yeah. yeah, and so they, they achieve a certain result, but you you speak how individually they wouldn't be able to know this stuff they wouldn't know that this is what the, you know like the end result of what they're doing is to achieve this this end it, it's just more of a you know how would you an organic process could you speak to that a little bit 
You know, well, this is a part of what's, it's a dimension of complexity called swarm logic. Uh, you can see it in schooling fish or herds of animals. What I was picking, and I deliberately picked these uh, unusual examples of uh, collective behavior in non-social insects, because this isn't their normal way of functioning, but they still have this ability. Uh, so these are beetle larvae in that particular case, which are very, in terms of communication systems, very simple organisms. Relatively speaking, they don't have a lot of ways of communicating, and they certainly are not filled with images of uh, like a bee or something like that. That, that it can't be. They don't. They don't have the wherewithal uh, genetically or in terms of their systems to truly hold that. And yet, they're able collectively to create something that has the semblance of a bee, gives off the right pheromones, causes male bees to try to come and mate, and then there's the whole journey that happens from there where they attach to the bee and then they carry to a, a mating event with a female bee and then they move over onto her back and carry to the hive where they eat the, um, the pollen, which they have to do to complete their life cycle so that there's a kind of deeper intelligence manifesting itself in terms of how these creatures uh, fully become themselves that none of them can know ahead of time. It's, uh, it's really rather striking how they have to do something in the collective um, that and if you were to anthropomorphize for a moment, it's like getting together with a group of your friends, and suddenly there's a kind of numinous experience. Something something comes out of the interactions that sweeps you away. Uh, you get a vision of something far beyond your personal uh, capacities, and that it's transformative for you to become more fully who you are. That's that's something like the narrative that sits there. And if that's true for beetle larvae, uh, I would imagine for humans there's at least that much potential. Well, I wonder if that, like that, those kind of examples might shake the foundations of our notion of time. It seems like our reality is oh. a pretty linear reality, but synchronicity speaks to something that is uh, it, it does not necessarily behave in a in a linear fashion. Would you That's agree? Right. I mean, how, how would you... Yeah, I, 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 part of the way I would go at that, or the way I'm struggling to go at it at this point, is um, the linear time is an outgrowth of kind of scientific measurement, and it has the fantasy behind it of a, a purely objective universe. It's out there, I can measure it, and my engagement with that doesn't really affect it. It's, it's, it's true whether I'm here or not. And my subjectivity is, um, is just my internal life and that it really isn't part of the construction of reality. Well, I think that's the vision. That's the Descartian logic, you know, from going back to Descartes about separating body and mind as two different realities that got us a lot of ground in some ways for about three, 400 years. But we're now, we've reached some of the, the limits of that, that in fact, subjective knowing is another form of knowing and it may have as much reality as certain forms of objective knowledge and that ultimately we're going to need something that synthesizes the two of them. And once you do that, subjective time and objective time are not the same thing. Uh, you know, we can travel in our mind, we can time travel in our mind very easily. And so what is time then? That's really where I'm coming. If, it, if both subjective and objective uh, experiences uh, capture aspects of reality, then the sort of higher level aspect of reality has to incorporate both of those. And then 
uh, linear theory of time doesn't make any sense. But I don't think, you know, the, Henry Bergson and, and uh, Albert Einstein got into a fight over this. There's been a couple of books published recently on this, and it's, I, I think their, the republication of the debate is really valuable because I think the, the Bergson at the time was seen as a, having lost the debate, but I think our view of reality is starting to change in such a way that we have to say, hmm, there's more complexity going on in this. We really need to re-examine a lot of the fundamentals that we thought were pinned down. I mean, just take, for example, though, the interest in astronomy and dark matter and even more uh, dark energy. When you start to, and I won't go into all the details there, but the, the nature of um, atomic reality, the kind of uh, substantive reality that we live in is our common sense reality, only makes up about 4.5% of the universe. Uh, the rest of what's out there is unknown to us. We, we know it's there now. I mean, there are measurements of it. But what it is and exactly how it's doing what it does is it's still open. So if 95% of the universe is unknown to us, I don't think we've, we've reached the final solution in terms of understanding uh, fundamental realities. There's a lot more to be explored. And I think that what's interesting to me is that the, some of those things about dark energy and dark matter, the kind of cosmology that comes out of that, it begins to intersect again with the kind of cosmologies that have come from those cultures who have taken a very deep internal journey um, in terms of their greatest uh, sages, that they've done a kind of subjective internal world exploration and imagined models of the universe that look curiously in some ways like the, this objective model that we are bumping into. And I, I think that what that says again is space and time, the way we conceive things uh, is um, needs to undergo further uh, examination. I, I, I want to go into left field, but it's funny because as, as I'm like saying that aloud, I'm wondering about that expression. You know, I know it's a, a baseball metaphor, yeah, but sure. <laughs> left yeah. I, <laughs> the connection between uh, like uh, I wonder if it's if it means the left field is the the right brain. Um, anyway, like mm. Jung wrote about UFOs and these ideas that are beyond normal consciousness. Um, I'm in a community of people that really enjoy exploring the idea of where these breakdowns in reality occurs, but there's also this kind of caution that we put out because it's almost like a schizophrenic, when you drop your filters and realize that, you know, everything's connected, all of a sudden you know you're you're seeing everything connected and it's a difficult way i guess it's i guess i should say like sure. ego consciousness is kind of what we need to have to operate in reality you know consensus reality say but when you start operating beyond ego consciousness and letting these filters drop you know you kind of you're in a territory that you, you need to be grounded in. It's almost like uh, people who use psychedelic drugs and things. How, could you speak to that's that right. a little bit? Oh, yeah, that's an extremely important observation. I mean, that's part of the 60s fascination with Jung and synchronicity, I think, was that they got the intuition that was there, but it's it's very precarious. I mean, happens if you if you don't have discernment about interconnection and you just see everything as interconnected without 
critical reflection, then you're paranoid. Then everything that happens is somehow connected, and it's connected to you, and then you're off and running in a in a in a very bizarre world that I don't think you can navigate very easily. And, you know, there's a, a wonderful comment by um, the British psychoanalyst guy named uh, Donald Winnicott. Uh, wrote back in the late 40s, he said, the job of the mother uh, is to protect the infant from too much coincidence. And it's a, it's a really striking statement yeah. mean, in some ways. Like, you know, you, you listen to that and you go, whoa, wait a minute. Her job is that, and so the, he was assuming the coincidence was there. He starts with that. And the job is, and it's about forming an ego. It's like we can't just live in a magical reality because then we can't decipher what we need to, to to live an ordinary life. And what I took from that when I spent some time wrestling with it was that, yeah, okay, I got it. We need that. We need that for consciousness to develop so we can live in the world. But at what point do we want to try to expand those boundaries for ourselves? Um, perhaps not too early in life. You know, you need to be grounded enough to be able to differentiate things. And then there is something where your own development requires being able to loosen the filters. I would say moving from a kind of ego state that you're talking about to maybe a little bit of more what I might call, uh, after James Hillman, the imaginal ego. That is, you know, the way we um, can use our imaginations when we can dis- differentiate what's an, an imaginative experience from um, an external experience. And, you know, this is the subjective-objective boundary again. We're we're playing with that. But the truth is you're absolutely right that if you if it gets too porous, you're just psychotic uh, and you're trapped in that. And so the question then is, um, where is the creative edge? You know, if you, you look at this emergentist business, one of the things that's fascinating is they, they say that for emergence to happen, it's at the edge of order and chaos. And that's the dance. If it gets too chaotic, uh, that is, it's too porous, then you can't decipher anything and nothing emerges. Then everything just dissolves. Um, but if it's too rigid, if you've got everything locked up into some kind of truth, then you can't let anything new happen. So the question is, is how do you begin to transform ego consciousness um, so that it, it holds reality, it holds you know the, the kind of order, but can tolerate more disorder when it's showing up without getting uh, swept away or, or sort of overwhelmed with it. And I think that's one of the interesting challenges of synchronicity is just that, you know, that there is an ethical and moral dimension to this. You have to, you know, whatever you want with synchronicity, I don't think you can just say, oh, they're just fundamentally good. I can give you lots of examples of some rather negative things. And that, that I think that synchronicity occurs without a kind of moral valence. It's not positive or negative. It's up to the individual to, who's engaging in the experience to sort that out. I mean, the ethics is, is left towards the ego side of consciousness to sort out where am I with this? Mm. Yeah, and then as you say that, I think about like the idea of the trickster where yeah. there's an important role there, but it's not necessarily, you can't put a good or bad on it. Uh, how, how uh, f- in terms of frequency, do you think like a real numinous type synchronicity, is that a rare event or is that something that and and then what about can you begin manifesting these in your life or do you think that it it's beyond an individual mind say yeah that's 
it's again another really good question. I mean, when I studied this, and I'm still working on this. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to do some writing now uh, along these lines. I mean, I, I've been interested in the field of what's called self-organizing criticalities. You know, the thing you, most people know is the Richter scale for the earthquakes. You know, that a one on the earthquake scale versus an eight or nine. You know, that just that many orders of magnitude because it's a log log scale. Uh, but if you get what's called a power line, that's what the Richter scale is. Uh, it, it means that the underlying phenomena is the same, uh, even if you don't have the tools to describe it. Say we didn't know about tectonic plates, then you'd know if you got the power line that you you basically all earthquakes were same fundamental thing. We now know what that is, but there are things like synchronicity that I think would must fit on this where we would say the same kind of thing. Well, there's something underlying here, even if we can't completely describe it. And what that is, and why it goes to your first point, is that's a frequency intensity scale. So the question of these really big numinous experiences, I think they are rare. But I don't think they're the only kind. I think it actually goes to the place where some people argue the mind-body relationship may have a fundamental synchronistic core to it, which is sort of a baseline, ordinary, everyday thing. Jung himself makes a couple of footnotes on that in the Synchronicity essay, where he talks about that possibility. But I think there are a lot of things in between, you know, sort of twos and threes and fours on the uh, psychic Richter scale of these things that are coincidences that can be very useful and valuable if we uh, learn to pay attention to them. That's why I'm interested in things like serendipity, you know, which is more and more being recognized as a fundamental part of innovation and discovery. So can we use it? Well, in that way, we can certainly use it. It's it's training the mind to pay attention to the unusual when it enters in and and not dismissing it or not trying to overly control it. I don't think we can control these things in the sense of uh, just, I'm going to make this manifest in this way. But I can create the kind of mental space inside of myself that's open to it, that can see it when it's occurring. And in that sense, it gives me a great uh, tool and advantage to recognize these things as they emerge in my life and then be able to reflect on that and be able to orient towards that. Does it um, create more of them? Well, it creates more awareness of them. Uh, and again, I think it's at different levels of intensity so that maybe I don't just have a bunch of really high-energy, numinous experiences all the time Um, and maybe I don't need to be hit over the head with them. (laughs) Another way to look at it. That maybe by paying attention, I get the sense of uh, orientation and direction, ruddering, if you will, that uh, can come with uh, things at a kind of uh, a little less intense level, but nevertheless are are extremely helpful. You know, oh, I was just thinking about such and such, and then uh, bumping into something along those lines, means, oh, I should really pay attention to this now. There's something in this that I don't know about, and so how do I deepen whatever's going on there? That then becomes a point of orientation, and often uh, useful discovery resides just there. An interesting development with the Internet age is this idea of connected networks that you can actually see behave in real time. Yeah. And and with yep. that, you know, not not something that's necessarily super numinous um Mm -hmm. the idea of psychic weather where you can see these patterns kind of blow through consciousness and affect a lot of people it's Mm -hmm. almost like something pushing everyone's buttons in the same way but people's responses are their own and but you can see a lot of similar responses do you 
Have, what would you make of that? And then also, in a larger, mm. larger item, do you think synchronicity is a force of nature like gravity or, you know, electricity? electricity or electromagnet you know like is it like the the scientific frontier that we just are beginning to explore yeah yeah um well yeah and let me start there and then i'll go back to the field piece that you're you raised at first jung's idea of putting uh synchronicity in as a fourth principle and i've kind of reframed it in, in terms of pattern formation tendencies um yeah what what happens is if you put it in there you're putting it in right alongside you know if you look at the big bang kind of uh, formulation what you have is an initial explosion and then after like 10 to the minus 43rd of a second you you have gravity coming in as the the first of the forces that uh, actually articulates and then we get the strong forces and then the the weak and the electromagnetic forces that begin to separate themselves out and these are the fundamental forces of our universe well Jung is playing that game. He's saying the pattern formation tendency is right in there. Um, And all of those forces that we look at, we best describe in terms of fields. You know, like gravity is, you know, we learned from Einstein that it's uh, it's not a thing. It's more the way in which space and time are are sort of um, shaped by uh, large objects. So in other words, if you think of uh, space-time as a kind of trampoline and you have an object like the sun that's relatively heavy, it warps the trampoline. It's like putting a bowling ball on a trampoline. It warps the space around it and particles that travel will then travel uh, according to that warpage of the surface. Okay, so that's the field, that, the, the way the field's shaped. I think synchronicity... Uh, like this is this pattern forming tendency that's not uh, it's not local it's not here nor there but it's part of a field phenomena just the way gravity is a field and um you know it's something about for humans it 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 certainly has to do with affect um and it has to do with emotion and um, and that seems to be part of for us what what uh, really interacts and shapes the field and what exactly that field's contrived of, and that's another matter. I don't know. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Okay, very good. It went really fast. You've been listening to Joseph Cambray on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. We'll link, readers to, uh, we'll link to a reader's copy of Synchronicity in the show notes. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out how shows are to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And just as we take advantage of what is, we should also recognize the utility of what is not. Let's go.
again Can't make it back again Can't make it back again